Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hi audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I have Sterling White. Sterling is from Indianapolis and he focuses in Indianapolis and Louisville, Kentucky. Currently uh, owning almost 400 units with valuation of 19 million. His company is called Xander Investment Group. Hey Sterling, welcome to the show. All right. Welcome, everyone. It is Sonder Investment Group is one thing I did want to allude to. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. We will get that right. Sonder yes. Investment Group. And then off camera, uh, for those of you who are from Louisville, he pronounced it Louisville. So <laughs> yes, which I like to do too. So that was hilarious. But yeah, get your yeah. popcorn ready, everyone. It's about to be a show. Awesome. Awesome. Stelling is very popular in bigger pockets. I've been getting his blog posts on bigger pockets for many, many years. How long have we been doing that? Oh gosh, I, four and a half, five, four yeah. years, three and a half yeah, years. That's a really long time. time. I, remember. I don't even know what day it is anymore. James. <laughs> <laughs> and you have been interviewed on uh, bigger pockets podcast for many, many times, right? Uh-huh. I would say episode 308. And then also I've been on their best deal ever podcast, which is like a spinoff from their main podcast. But yeah. Okay. okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, that's bigger pockets. This is Achieve Wealth. We are still one of the uh, top 24 real estate podcasts for 2019. So you are in the right place, man. <laughs> so Sterling, why don't you tell our audience about yourself, about your story? Because I think you have a lot of good story to share that can be inspirational to others. Yeah. So just a little uh, background on myself. I'll give everyone like a clip note version. So born and raised in Indianapolis, as James mentioned earlier, uh, fraternal twin brother and single mother. And we grew up on uh, welfare, uh, Section 8 housing, food stamps, and I'm sure of other government assistance my mother and tell both and I about. And I remember the environment that we grew up in just wasn't the best. Uh, and I remember one instance, my brother and I were actually sitting at one of those little multicolor, like Fisher Price type tables. We're about six years old. And as soon as we get done eating dinner, we go upstairs to believe we were playing like PlayStation or Sega or something. And a bullet comes right through the back patio where we were sitting. So I may not be here. He may not be here. Uh, but at the end of the day, decided to not be a product of that environment and use that as fuel. Got started in real estate 2009 on the construction side. Uh, fell in love with the industry, not so much getting my hands dirty, and then shifted to uh, the investing, bought first deal, 2013, no money out of pocket, uh, with leveraging my mentor's cash at that time, scaled up to 150 single families, and then in 2017, made the entire shift to multifamily uh, and scaled portfolio just under 600 units, exited out of all the single families, and now just all multifamily. 
Yeah, I remember when I was reading your blog, you were all about single family. Okay, I did learn a lot. <laughs> I'm happy that you wrote that blog because the content marketing too. But that's a whole nother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We- <laughs> deep into that because I think, you know, writing blogs like that where you generate content and I, sometimes people say, why do I need to write? There is definitely a credibility establishment when, when that happens. So after you finish your studies, uh, you said, did you go directly into uh, real estate? I know we missed that part on how did you move to real estate? How Why, why real estate was the aha moment? I mean, you say you did some construction, but why yeah. Uh, investment? Yeah, so I was... In college at the time, I actually dropped out at a a later point. College was not for me. I took chemistry one and two, a total of five times. (laughs) In context, yeah, chemistry. Chemistry is fun, man, even though I don't enjoy it. (laughs) But uh, during those college times, during the summer, my roommate's dad owned a construction company. And he saw that I had some free time. And that's how I got started. He said, hey, I see you're, you're... uh, around the house oftentimes. And I also was doing entrepreneur ventures, but still, and then that's how I was able to uh, earn some money. So when you were having free time and when your you know, friend's father saw you and there must be something that has attracted you to go and try out this because you know the reason why you had free time because you didn't find something that was motivating enough for you to go and do, right? But what was what was the trigger point? Hey, maybe I should go and try that out. One thing that I, that I always did enjoy and seeing, because also I was able to visit some of his houses that he had because he owned rentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not the, the My roommate's dad did and also he owned rentals. I really enjoyed the element of seeing a house in distressed condition and then seeing the aftermath. The, the, once the, the value is created, and then you're able to see afterwards. So the before and then the after. So that's what I enjoyed. And then on the construction side, I was helping the bricklayers. Uh, I provided them the, the mortar uh, to be able to, to, to lay the bricks. Huge grind for sure. But after that project is I started from the beginning and then it was on the, a fire station to look back and say, wow, I was involved with all that. Such a cool experience. And that's what I thought. Yeah. Didn't you write a blog about it? I remember someone writing a blog, right? Doing a wall. Is that you? Uh, are that, Will Smith has a, uh, <laughs> I know Will Smith. Has no, a. not Will Smith. I mean, this was from a bigger pockets uh, somewhere. I mean, either a podcast or a blog where someone said they, they build a wall. Uh, it was very cool. Man. <laughs> that's fine. So how did you move? I mean, so. So before before going to multifamily or multifamily, so on single family, was there any limiting factor that you had? Because you know you're moving from construction to investment side of it. Was there any limiting factor? I know limiting hurdle that you had in your mind that, and how did you overcome that? Yeah, I would say I had no limiting beliefs when I was making that transition, and what really helped with that was feeding my mind as much positivity. So that same roommate that got me started in construction. He has also been a pivotal in terms of another uh, aha moment that I had in my life, which was I was at a college party. Yes, I'll call it what it is and having a good time. (laughs) And I tended, I ventured out on my own. This is my early 20s and I'm out on this boat and there's this, and I'm all by myself. And there's this beaming question that comes down to me and says, Sterling, is this what you want to do with your life? And I answered back to that question. No, this is not. Since then, I cut off all my friends because they weren't going where I wanted to go. Ultimately, I cut off all the news because there was so much negativity. And then I started with a lot of self-improvement. And that allowed me to get a lot of the limiting beliefs out and replace those with more empowering ones. 
And I still believe I have limiting beliefs to this day. And I'm always looking to become self-aware to identify those and replace those with more empowering ones. Got it. Got it. Got it. So when you started on your single family, how did you start buying deals? How many single family did you had before you transitioned to a multifamily? And how did you buy that deal? And how did you make money out of single family to transition to multifamily? Yeah. Yeah, so just got up to about 150 of those and <laughs> I'll start it with one. And that very first deal was, it, it was uh, $25,000. It was in about, I would say a C neighborhood, C plus neighborhood. And it was not a shed. Those of you who may be on the West Coast or East Coast, you can actually in Indianapolis get some very affordable houses. You couldn't get that for that much now since things have gone up. Uh, and I presented that to my mentor. He funded the purchase price and also the rehab. And one thing before all of that happened with that deal, I was working for him for completely free. And that's how I got started uh, uh, Started in the investing side, was able to compact his 20 years uh, knowledge into the two and a half years that I worked with him. Got it, got it, got it. So did you use any, but so you went up to 150 single family houses. That's great. That's crazy because I, I stopped at 13. <laughs> I wish I would have known that sooner. <laughs> I cannot take it after 13. But did you have an infrastructure to manage that many houses or did you have like a system? Yeah, so ended up from that, that mentorship, I uh, shifted to a finding a, a partner that was very similar uh, in terms of our ages because I outgrew that original uh, mentorship. And he was behind the scenes of an operation of a operator that managed closer to about a thousand single families. So he understood how that worked uh, and we were able to lay the foundation to start building up on that and scale our portfolio. Got it, got it. And how did you buy these houses? Is it through normal MLS or you did off-market marketing or what A mix of just about everything. So doing the bandit signs, uh, okay. that was one route. And I remember doing those way back when and there was someone who always would go down and take them up. So that was one. <laughs> and I did that too. Oh, did you? <laughs> oh yeah, of course. <laughs> we all are hustlers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was funny. There was a stapler. Uh, you would take a PVC pipe and then uh -huh. you would take the, the staple and a staple gun and put it on there so you can hang the sign all the way up on a telephone pole. Have you I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so people just couldn't jump up there. Just... Oh, oh, you did the more advanced bandit sign. I did the one yeah. that you just put in, you know, on the, on the side yard and all that. That's yeah. it. But you did the one that is harder, more effective because people can see it from far away and <laughs> nobody can come and grab it. But, but you're right. Every time you put in and after a few days, the city or someone's going to come and take it out, right? And if you put it all the way up there. So that, that was one route uh, was purchasing from the MLS and then also taking the direct to owner approach as well. So a multitude. Which one was the most effective, makes you the, made you the highest money? Between bandit sign, MLS, and you know, direct-to-seller uh, marketing? I would say the direct-to-seller was by far. Uh, the mm -hmm. MLS had success with that, but that took a lot in terms of offers, which most of it, uh, whichever channel you go through, does. Uh, that's the same thing. Uh, but in essence, is I would say it was the MLS and also the direct-to-seller approach, with, which included mostly direct mail. And how did you transition to multifamily and why? Uh, because managing that many single families was a pain in the grass. <laughs> <laughs> but you had someone yeah. helping you out, right? Uh, yeah, there was a whole team that was involved uh, with the, the How big was the team? Both acquisitions. 15, 16 team members. Uh, yeah, that takes time. That's why I was it more so on the property management side. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I had like 13 houses all, all on my own. So just crazy. Right. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that needs a team. 150 houses needs a team. So why did you move to multifamily? More so economies of scale was the, the biggest. And then also looked at, okay, where we want to go in the future, which was ultimately shifting to the multifamily at some point. So why not do it sooner rather than later? So what are the key learnings that you took from single family to multifamily acquisition and operation? Yeah, I would say more so is the management. I mean, if you're able to manage that many single families, so yeah, if you're able to manage that many single families, the same could apply. Uh, Of course, there's some more, uh, what is it, small day-to-day changes that would be different on the multifamily side, but Uh uh managing 46 uh, single families is a lot more difficult to manage one apartment 46 unit apartment complex, which was my very first deal in 2017, which was a 46 unit. Uh, and then, so, so there's that. And it's just a lot more labor intensive because scaling to that many single families is, it wasn't one to two uh, transactions. There was close to about 100 to 125 transactions because a lot were one-offs, a package of two, maybe a package of three or four every so often. Mm-hmm. And then from the multifamily, that very first deal was one buy, one seller, one transaction, all in one single location. So once that happened, it was like light bulb went off. What do you think, I mean, uh, in terms of like value add, right? Because multifamily is valued differently from single family. Did you oh, find yes. that out halfway through? I know, you know, sometimes people do like single family. I have people who just want to do single family. But I, I moved from single family to multifamily. What did you see in terms of uh, value add and how did that change your strategy? Yeah, I would say that is a great point. So also what was learned is underwriting was a different style. Mm-hmm. So looking at it from, okay, the NOI is, uh, let's say it's this, we're purchasing at a, a 7% cap uh, in, let's say, five, six years, we're going to be looking at an exit. Let's be a little bit more conservative at a seven and a half or eight and not bank on cap rates are so much going to steadily be compressing. So on the the multifamily side, we took more so that it's valuated as a business versus Mm -hmm. on the single family, there's more exits. And so there was, okay, this is one if we exit to an investor. Okay, this is one if we exit to a retail. So those were also differences too. So tell us about more about your multifamily journey, like how many units you started and, and how many units you have right now and how did you grow each one of that? Yeah, so started with a 46 unit, then acquired a 50 unit. And uh, after that, two 80 unit apartments and then 156 unit. So, so exited out of the 46 unit, the 50 unit, and now just own the 280 units and the 156 unit. Why did you exit out from the smaller ones? Because they were smaller. <laughs> that was it right there. But Mesa made you a lot of money too, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, the one that was a 46 unit is uh, one that was the, the boiler system. So that was the older age okay, got of it. property. Uh, so there was a heating, the boiler that was uh, affecting the, in terms of the expenses. And then also we wanted to be able to push up the rent a little bit more and we felt a little bit capped off. And also we were transitioning to more desirable assets and just step above in terms of the neighborhoods. And so with all those things considered uh, that, uh, and we're not able to have on-site staff, that's why we made the transition to uh, selling that one. And then also there was a 1031 buyer too. 
Oh, got it, got it. Yeah, smaller one can be a problem with the on-site buyer. So where do you see yourself going uh, from uh, from now onwards on multifamily or any other asset classes? Yeah, so have shifted more from the older style, so the ones that have been built uh, pre-1970s and shifting more to those in the, what you would say, B-class that have less heavy lift. So how do you underwrite a deal? I mean, can you look, walk through your basic sniff test? Because, uh, I mean, this is a market in the Midwest state. So what would you look for when a deal is thrown to you by a broker? Yeah, so more so just looking at, and so I go the approach of going direct to owner. So I still That's do awesome. have brokers send over deals, but in essence is looking for uh, cash on cash to be in the double digits. That way, myself as the operator, our, our team has, when we do the equity split, that we still have enough to provide our partners double digits. So there's that. And our IRR is to be anywhere between uh, 15% to 18% on a, a three to five year uh, horizon. So, but what would you look for? I mean, not I'm not talking about the a compensation structure. So, oh yeah. So basically you say the end result is the, what they look at compensation structure, right? Before that, you look at the area, the demographic, the household incomes and all that. Before. Oh yeah. Yeah. So look at it. We looking at the, so we look at the overarching market uh-huh. and uh-huh. ensure like Indianapolis is very diversified in terms of the businesses. You got Simon property group, which is one of the largest real estate investment trusts in the world. You've got Eli, uh, Eli Lilly, which is uh, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies. You got Blue Anthem Blue Cross, which is one of the largest uh, uh-huh. healthcare. So looking at that from that a uh, high level and then going to the sub market, looking at how are the schools, uh, how is the the crime, that's always something that's very uh, significant. And then also, yes, looking at the uh, median incomes, ensure that when we're doing the value add, that that sub-market can uh, support it or uh, absorb it. Got it, got it, got it. So let's talk about off-market strategy that you talked about. How many multifamily deals have you bought using your off-market strategy? All of them. Oh, all of so basically that broker yeah. doesn't exist, I guess. Right? No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you bought like uh, what, almost four to five hundred units on all off market. That is correct. Awesome. So let's tell, talk about that. What kind of strategy did you use to get off market deals? So that is a secret. I'm just kidding. No, I wouldn't do that. So it all starts with a cold call, and I know there's people on here that are a little bit screaming. It's like, oh, I don't know about a cold call, uh, but in essence, is that's. Uh, the, the route that we go is we pull a list. We'll use something such as uh, reonomy.com or even costar.com, not affiliated with either. But those databases, you can pull these properties that are between 75 to 200 units in, let's say, Indianapolis, Indiana, or Austin, Texas. And then from there, further narrow down the list and say, okay, I want the the, the assets that haven't been sold in the most recent five years, and then further narrow down, I want the rents, market rates between $700 to $1,000. And then that is very niche of a list. Most of them will be owned an LLC, so skip trace the LLC, and then find the person's, the, the, the principal, the owner, uh, and then give them a call. Got it. Well, I do a lot of off-market as well. So that's what I want to understand. Uh, how are you doing it and all that? But but it's impressive that you found all of your deals off-market. I think I found like almost three of my deals were off-market out of my nine deals that I've done. Right yeah, out. it's a whole separate infrastructure mm-hmm. is one thing because you think of it when I first started building that out myself, I was the one that headed all of it. So that's a full-time job because that's what brokers do on a full-time basis. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that on top of everything else, but then I decided to 
document what I was doing, put an infrastructure in place and now hire people to do that. And then now they, when an owner raises their hand, they just set the appointment with me. So what kind of infrastructure did you have to do that? Because that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. So uh, a researcher is the first one and that's the person I'll provide the criteria to. They'll go to St. Louis, Missouri, pull all those properties. And then most are owning uh, LLC. So they'll skip trace the LLC. Second role that comes into play is the cold caller. Or they're the one that places all the outbound calls. And then the third is you could say the acquisitions manager where the appointment is set with me, where I then hop on the phone call. One of the questions I always ask from right from the beginning is why now being open to selling just to understand if there actually is a motivation. If they're saying, uh, I just want to hear your offer and I'm looking for something uh, that I couldn't resist ultimately and then I would sell, then that person wouldn't be a good fit. But if there is something to where not a slam dunk deal, especially in today's uh, environment, then that's when I would retrieve the T12 uh, as well as the rent roll to start the underwriting process. So where do you get the list for the initial uh, you know, search? Uh, Rihanna and CoStar. Rihanna and CoStar. So do you use both of it or do you use both in conjunction of each other? I use Rihanna right now. And okay. uh, formerly I would use CoStar because I had a... Uh, what is it? The agent that we use, we use apartments.com and they had access to CoStar because CoStar bought apartments.com. CoStar, CoStar so, owns apartments.com, yes. Yeah. So they would just send that from the data that I wanted. How accurate is Rionomy uh, owner information? Not accurate. Same okay. with CoStar. And okay. I'll give you all a prime example for CoStar, which is one of the most reputable, if not the most reputable when it comes to data had a representative, one of their reps in the office of one of the apartments that I have here in Indianapolis. And I said, could you pull the data on this specific property? And they pulled the property and also the owner information. I said, my, my information is not there and I've had this property before. <laughs> I was like, don't add it, but yeah. yeah the same thing happened to me when I first uh, talked to Costa. I told them, hey, can you pull my property? And this under some, somebody else's name. And okay, forget about it. No point of selling anything else to me. <laughs> so it's just one of those things that, yes, these places are a good starting point, but still you have to go the extra mile and actually do your own due diligence. Yeah, yeah. but that was like almost five years ago. Maybe they're better right now, right? So, so okay, after you get the data <laughs> from Rionomy, you basically do skip tracing. What software do you use for skip tracing? Uh, so public records. So haven't found a absolute science when it comes to skip tracing the LLCs. I've looked for just about anything. So if anyone who's on here who knows a, uh, a software or a service that offers that, I would love to hear about it. There's some I've actually looked into, but they don't work. So the route is to go public record to find out who filed the articles of organization. Okay, after that, how do you find the information? Uh, you use a source such as benverify.com, b-e-n-verify.com, or there's truepeoplesearch.com, uh, whitepages.com, just one of those providers to type in their name. Hopefully, it's not as common as John Smith. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard about being that's verified. I've never really used it, but I've heard about it. That's good. So, okay, so now you have all the information, the owner's information. You're going to get your acquisition person to call these owners, right? Mm -hmm. So how would they first call and how would they pick up the call and how would they approach the sellers? Uh, so sometimes it, it does vary on script, whether they get the gatekeeper or they get the decision maker, uh, mm -hmm. but it's more along the lines of, uh, hey, uh, it goes ring, ring, ring. Hey, John. Well, I'll, I'll speak from my side is how, how we go. 
Hey, ring, ring. Hey, Sterling here. Jim, did I catch you at a bad time? And then the, the person on the, or we could just do some role playing right now. Nah, 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 I'm going to go into some role because this I'm is I'm a tough I, guy. Because <laughs> this is what I do with the team is that we do role playing on a daily basis. Got it. Got it. We're back and forth of objections, but the opening is just more so, hey, Sterling here. Uh, I just bought Bentwood Apartments across the street from yours and wanted a person to reach out to see if you consider selling. So it's more of just straight to the point, transparent. Uh, then from there, a lot of times they'll say, not interested. John, I completely understand. I'm sure you get these types of calls all the time. Tell you what, give me 30 seconds. If you don't like what you hear, I'll hang up on myself. So that's that's how the, the dialogue goes. And mm. then we also go into some additional questions. Yeah, I get a lot of calls too. Maybe one of that is your guys too. I never know. <laughs> Because you mentioned Austin <laughs> in the beginning that you're looking at. But I will say, you know, I'm not interested. Forget about it. Because sometimes you're very busy on the phone. Or, I mean, during our daytime and suddenly someone calling and asking something irrelevant. You know, we want to hang up as quickly as possible. But that's <laughs> yeah. a good line that you said, hey, give me 30 seconds, you know, so that I can explain. Yeah. You're just looking to buy as much time uh, correct, as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's all about connection and numbers, right? End of the day, right? I mean, contacts equals contracts. Yeah. And that one person who said yes to you could be a $10 million deal, right? So yeah, that, that deal that we were talking about offline was a, mm-hmm. a $7 million deal. And that all started with a cold call. Mm-hmm. And of course there took, Many people see, oh, it was a cold call that closed on this deal, but you don't see all the contacts and all the work that happened until it got to that point. Correct. We made millions of dollars just by cold calling, cold texting. That's what I use. It works. It works. But at the end of the day, whatever channel anyone uses is about consistency. Yes, yes. I mean, you can do broker relationship, but I think it's, you know, you probably get a normal deal at the same time for a newbie. It's just so hard to get with brokers. They already know you're a newbie and they're not going to waste time giving you the best deals out there. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> right, so that's good. That's good. So let's talk about content marketing because you are an expert in content marketing to get investor acquisition. Let's walk through that process. How did you thought about content marketing? How did that have worked out for you? You know, how does the investors are attracted to come and, you know, connect with you through content marketing? Yeah. So it all started with the book, Jab, Jab, Right Hook by Gary Vaynerchuk. Phenomenal book. Uh, He's an influencer out there, but in terms of that book, Planet the Seed. And in essence, Jab, 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 the Jab, Jab is, value, 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 content, content marketing, free content. And then the right hook could be invest with me. What does it go with my coaching or what, whatever your services happen to be. Uh, and but the original title of the book was supposed to keep saying more jabs. And that's <laughs> the exact process that I take is put out a lot of content, a ton of content. And then also I use Grant Cardone's 10x rule uh, philosophy with pushing out a lot because the thing is, it's so noisy in the marketplace. Uh, so overall from the content marketing is to provide value. And those of you who are just getting started that are thinking, I don't know what value I can create, share your story. People would want to hear your story and also document your journey as well as far as uh, the content. Got it. Got it. So what are the content uh, channels do you use? Is it blogs, uh, podcasts? Uh, all of it. YouTube and all. Okay. So you have, you're <laughs> on all more, of it. I, yeah. I would say more so now is on, I've pushed to the video side. And so I have my own podcast, The Real Estate Experience, which James is on and that, uh, that will be airing soon. Uh, so there's that is one channel. And then also I use all the social media platforms to post that content. So on the audio side, 
iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify through the podcast, which a lot is shifting more to the, uh, what is it, listening, and then have the video side, got YouTube, got Facebook, got Instagram, in which I could take, like what you're doing here, James, is you could take the video from this and be able to post it on all those platforms and repurpose it. So which one do you think is the most effective in terms of uh, connecting with investors and investor, you know? I would say in terms of when I got started, Bigger Pockets was huge. Uh-huh. And then also being on others' podcasts really helped. Just those two channels alone. Of course, okay. I had a multitude of other channels, but those two really did help with brand awareness. Got it, got it, got it. That's awesome, awesome. Or as telling, I'm sure you had a lot of tons of value to our listeners. Why not you tell our listeners how to get hold of you? Yeah, so you can visit Sonder Investment Group and contact me on there. My email is sterling at Sonder Investment Group. And also, I'm on Instagram, Sterling White Official. If you have any questions, slide into the DM with any questions. <laughs> and how do you spell Sonder? S O N D E R Investment oh, Group. Okay, S O N D E R. Okay, got it, got it. Okay, awesome. All right, thanks for coming on the show. All righty, have a great one, everyone. Keep being awesome. Thank you. Night. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.